the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Father, as we approach you this morning, we come before your throne in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus. We recognize and acknowledge that apart from Him, we have no right to speak with the Almighty God. But because of Christ, we have a hearing at the throne of the Creator and Sustainer of life. We come to You today, Father, asking for Your help to not only understand Your Word, but to appropriate it in our lives. We acknowledge that we need courage and strength to walk out of faith before a watching world, a world that is in, at times hostile to the Gospel and therefore hostile to those who would seek to live out a genuine faith in Christ. So today we ask for Your help. I ask that you would help me to communicate clearly and effectively the things that you have for us to hear today. We commit our time into your hands for Christ's sake. And again, in his name we pray. Amen. Tim Keller, in his book Prayer, shares about a Norwegian a 20th century Norwegian pastor who likens prayer to mining as he knew it in Norway. Demolition to create mine shafts took two basic kinds of actions. There are long periods of time, this pastor says, when the, the deep holes are being bored with great effort into the hard rock. To bore the holes deeply, uh, to bore the holes deeply enough into the most strategic spots for removing the main body of rock was work that took patience, steadiness, and a great deal of skill. Once the holes were finished, however, the shot was inserted and connected to a fuse. To light the fuse and fire the shot is not only easy but also very interesting. One sees results. Shots resound and pieces fly in every direction. And he concludes that while the more painstaking work takes both skill and patient strength of character, anyone can light a fuse. And Keller then comments, this helpful illustration warns us against doing fuse lighting prayers the kind that we soon drop if we do not get immediate, re immediate results. If we believe both in the power of prayer and the wisdom of God, then we will have patient prayer. We will have a patient prayer life of whole boring. Mature believers know that handling the tedium is part of what makes for effective prayer. We must avoid extremes of either not asking God for things or thinking we can bend God's will to our own. We must combine tenacious importunity, that is a striving with God, with deep acceptance of God's wise will, whatever it is. Now, last week, 
we were encouraged and challenged to ask God to, to, to put somebody on our mind, right? Some person, one person, that God would have us to begin seeking to invest relationally for the purpose of, of the gospel, purpose of sharing Christ with them. I want to be very clear. People are not projects to be worked on. People are, are people to be loved. Right? We're not called to be salesmen making a sale. We're called to be genuine followers of Christ, sharing the love of Christ that has been shown to us. There's a big difference. Most, if not all of us, have had those experiences where a person came to us and seemed to be wanting to initiate a real relationship, only to find out that once you kind of let them in, they want to sell you something. And when you did not agree with them or, or buy what they were selling, man, they're gone. They're off to somebody else. And you, you find yourself feeling empty, feeling used, feeling like a fool for having trusted them to come into your life, feeling like you've been manipulated. That is not how we share Christ. If that's your plan, then don't do it. Just give up on that. Because that is... That produces... A, a disdain in the in the minds and hearts of, of people toward Christ, just as it does for you when you experience that with a salesperson. This call, this challenge to to be a, a witness for Jesus Christ, to to live out of faith before others with the with the idea that God would have me to influence somebody else for the sake of Christ is a long-term commitment. Like boring holes into the rock, it takes patience, perseverance, and a great deal of humility. And I believe that we are up for the challenge. The first step, after identifying who God would have us to, to pursue in a relationship, so that we can earn the right and the privilege to let Christ be made known to them through our lives and through our words is to pray for that person. And this morning and next week, we're going to take a look at how to pray for those who have not yet come to know Christ. How biblically can we pray for them? Can we, can we stand in the gap, if you will, for their souls? Before we get into that, I want to share a couple thoughts that I have. Uh, God has used a couple scriptures over the past couple of years, past few months, to, to kind of stir me regarding prayer. One of those is in 1 Samuel chapter 12, when Samuel uh, had already anointed Saul to be king in Israel. The people wanted a king, and God said to Samuel, anoint the king. Right? They're not rejecting you. As a, as a prophet, they're rejecting me. Give them what they want. So he anointed Saul as their king. 
and, and he's instructing the people that if they would fear God and obey God, then, then things will go well for them. And then he makes this statement in verse 23 of 1 Samuel 12. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and right way. Samuel recognized as a spiritual leader in Israel he felt the, the conviction, if you will, of the Lord that it was on him as a spiritual leader to pray for those that God has placed under his spiritual leadership. This challenge to be used by God as a witness for Christ is a challenge to be a spiritual leader in someone else's life. To be a spiritual influence in their life for the sake of the gospel. Again, not as a project, but as a person that Christ came to save. And so we are called to be a spiritual leader. As a spiritual leader, we are to be praying for those that God had, wants us to be a spiritual influence in their lives. Another verse of Scripture that God has used is in Ezekiel 22. God is speaking to the people uh, he's already taken many into exile, and he's talking about why this has come about. And one of the things he says, Ezekiel 22.30 is, he said, I searched for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the gap for the land. But I should not destroy it. But I found no one. No one who would stand in the gap between God and and the people in the land. And I believe God wants us to stand in the gap, right? For, for someone else's soul. Are we willing to stand in the gap between God and a sinner for the sake of their eternal soul? There is no greater calling, I can imagine, than to be someone who stands between God and a, and a person that doesn't know Christ for the purpose of seeing them come to Christ. To stand before God, to plead to God on their behalf, and to go to them and to bring Christ to them. And just this past week, as I began praying through and reading through a, a new reading plan for 2023, Genesis 15, Here's Abram. He's already been told by God and made a covenant with God, or God made a covenant with him. And through him, his, through his seed, he would bless all the nations of the earth. And so Abram's trying to figure out how is this going to work because he's old and he has no kids. And so he thinks, well, maybe someone born in my home will become my heir. And so he says to God, yes, this person who's born in my house will be the heir. And God says, no. Verse 4, he says, Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, came to Abram, and said, This man shall not be your heir, but one who, come, who shall come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. So he takes him outside and shows him the stars in the sky, and he says, he says Count them if you can. And he says, this is, this is how I'm going to bless you, and the, the, 
your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And it says, Abram believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And then the next chapter, he believes his wife, Sarai, who has, comes up with this idea to, to have him uh, be with Hagar, her handmaid, and have a child there because then he will have an heir from his own body and, and that's how they'll fulfill God's plan. And we see time and time again, Abram knew something what God has called him to do, but he didn't know how to do it, and so he's coming up with his own ideas on how to do that. And every time he messed up. We need to understand, and it's not our job to make anybody believe in Christ. We can't do that. It's not within our power. That is the work of God in their heart and life. We need to understand our job. Our job is to be a witness for Christ. Our job is to love people for Jesus' sake. Our job is to step into opportunities that God gives us and to speak truth in love with them. Our job is not to make them convert, not make them believe, not make them pray a prayer that, that somehow gives us a good feeling about, well, I, I accomplished this. Again, it's not a job to be accomplished. It's a person to be loved. And when we get in God's way, when we try and do God's work our way, we screw it up. And so I, I say that as, as a, hopefully an encouragement to us to say, okay, now what does it look like? What am I supposed to do? Well, we need to start by praying. And here are a couple ways. I'll share two with you today, two with you next week. How we can stand in the gap for the soul of another person. First of all, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to look at a couple different passages this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. One of the ways that we can stand the gap for those who have yet to know Christ is to pray for blinders to be removed. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. Chapter 4, verses 3 through 6 of 2 Corinthians. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of of unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And so we see that the enemy blinds the mind. He blinds the minds of unbelievers. The God of this world is Satan himself. And he is actively seeking to blind the minds of unbelievers to the gospel truth. To keep them in the dark about the gospel. Now we know, according to 1 Corinthians 2.14, which says that uh, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. We in our fleshly nature cannot understand spiritual things unless the Lord changes something in us. The enemy is seeking to keep us blinded. The text doesn't tell us how he does that, but we can certainly see some of the ways. One of which, in our culture today, is busyness. 
We are so busy doing stuff and filling our, our time with activities, we never have time to consider what God may be doing, what God may be saying, how God may be working. And then you add to that all the, the social media and all everything that fills the cracks and crevices of time in our life. There's never any time to ponder the realities, spiritual realities, maybe going on in people's lives. One of the things that irks me, I'll, I'll keep it at that, when I'm sitting in a stoplight and the light turns green, and the car in front of me doesn't move because he or her are down looking at their phone because they cannot sit at a stoplight for two minutes without checking social media or without checking a text or without doing something. Now, maybe it's legitimate. Maybe there's somebody, you know, something that's urgent, whatever. I, again, I don't want to judge that, but it irks me because then I'm sitting there and I got to beep, you know, oh, okay, I got to go. Sometimes I want to go, get moving, people, right? Again, that says something about me and my lack of patience. But the reality is, we are so consumed with, with having to stay connected with everything all the time. When does anyone ever ponder the reality that, you know what, I might not be where I'm supposed to be. I might not be where I'm supposed to be. There may be a God in heaven who has a different plan for my life. When do people ever think about that? It's when they're continually bombarded with, some other message all the time. I think the enemy uses that to keep people blinded to the realities of spiritual things. And that's just one of probably many things the enemy does to blind the minds of unbelievers. And so we pray, God, remove the blinders. The second truth regarding this, he says in verse 6, is that the Lord opens the heart. If the enemy's blinding the mind and keeping people in the dark, it's God who can open the heart. And so he says, for God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. He shines into our hearts the glory, the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that we might see it. It is the work of God. And we see in Acts chapter 16 when Paul went to Philippi and he went down to the river to, to teach the people who were interested. And it says that a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Here is a person who is interested in the things of God, who is there to worship God, she needs her heart open to hear the gospel. How much more the person who is doesn't want it, rejecting it, who, who doesn't want to hear this. They need the Lord to work in their heart. And Jesus himself said in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And I will raise them up on the last day. It's the work of God to draw hearts. And the evidence of Scripture is, and I don't understand why God does it this way, but He does it this way. He works through the prayers of His people. And so it is incumbent upon us that we pray for an unbeliever 
for the, for the removal of the blinders. We pray that God would draw their hearts, that God would open their heart to the truth so when they hear it, they'll be receptive to it rather than reject it. And so the first way we can pray for our unbelieving loved ones is to pray that God will remove the blinders from their lives. They might see the truth when, they, when they, it's presented to them. They would hear it and understand it when it is brought before them. Secondly then, John chapter 16, verses 7 through 11. Here we have Jesus. He's been in the upper room with his disciples. He's, um, it's the night before he was going to, to, to die on the cross. And he's already told them that he was leaving them shortly. They've left the upper room. And they're on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And they have this conversation. And Jesus says to them here in, in John chapter 16, verses 7 through 11, and he says, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. <laughs> and I'm sure they're thinking, there's no way there could be any advantage to Jesus leaving us. And he says, because if I do not go, the helper cannot come. If I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer behold me. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. As I've looked through the scriptures, this is the only place in all the Bible where we see the Holy Spirit doing a work, a ministry to unbelievers. Primarily, the Holy Spirit ministers to you and I as believers. He gives us gifts. He guides us. He comforts us. Um, he directs. He does all kinds of things in the lives of believers. The only ministry the Holy Spirit has to an unbeliever is to convict them of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so we should pray for conviction to be felt. For conviction to be felt. The Spirit convicts with truth. He convicts concerning sin because a lack of belief in Christ is the critical sin of which the world needs to be convicted of. Because it's the thing that will keep them out of heaven. Concerning righteousness, because Jesus is the perfect standard of righteousness. He's about to leave them when he's telling them this. His example will no longer be seen. And yet it's his perfect righteousness that is required. And then concerning judgment, because he says the enemy has been judged. And guess what? Every one of us, every person will stand before the judge of this world one day and give an account for their own life. The only answer that's going to hold water that day is I am trusting in the, the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ who shed His blood on my behalf, who declared me righteous with His righteousness. And it's that that I'm holding to with all of my faith, with all that I have. And it's that and that alone 
that will stand at the judgment. And so we need to pray for the conviction of the Holy Spirit upon an unbeliever, that they will recognize that they are a sinner and that they will stand before God one day because they, are not, they do not have the righteousness that is required in that moment apart from Jesus Christ. And the last passage I want to take you to is in Psalms 32 where we see an example of this conviction in the life of David. Psalm 32, we're going to look at verses 1 through 5. Most likely, this is David speaking of his experience after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba and after he had uh, Uriah, her husband, murdered on the battlefield. And it was the time between that and the time when he actually repented and, and, and acknowledged his sin before God when Nathan the prophet came to him. In that period of time, which was about nine months, where we find David experiencing the conviction of God. And he expresses that. He starts out in the first couple of verses expressing how blessed a person is who's been forgiven. He says, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. And then he says, and here's what I experienced. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through groaning all day long. For day and night, thy hand, God's hand, was heavy upon me my vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. He said, this is what I experienced. The convicting work of God on my life because I was a sinner and I, had, I was not willing to admit that and acknowledge that. Here's what our problem is oftentimes. Because we're a part of this culture. This culture says that a person's happiness is the end goal. And in many ways, we have kind of bought into that, though we wouldn't say that we know that's not true, but we, we kind of often live that way. We want that for our children. We want that for other people we care about. We certainly don't want anybody that we care about to go through hardships and difficult times. And so we have a tendency to want to rescue people from their pain, their problems, or, or to, to certainly not want that for them. And the problem with that is that for most people, they got to go through this pain before they come to realize they need a Savior. And so are you willing to pray that God would bring conviction to the extent that, they, that David experienced? To the point where, where they're miserable where they are. Are you willing to allow them to be in misery because they are sinners in need of a Savior? As a friend, you come alongside and you're right there with them, but you don't rescue them out of their pain. You, you simply walk in it with them until they come to realize as you speak truth gently and carefully into their life that you love them and continue praying for them that their eyes will be open. That they feel the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. Because a little heat now is far better than a lot later. Because we know the alternative 
If a person dies in their sin, they will spend eternity apart from God in a place of torment called hell. David felt the convicting work of God in his life. He said, my life was miserable. All day, all night, your hand was heavy upon me. I was groaning. He was probably miserable and miserable to be around. And then verse 5. I acknowledge my sin before thee. I came clean. I realized all of this is because I'm a, I'm a sinner and I've, I've sinned against God. My iniquity I did not hide. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And thou didst forgive the guilt of my sin. When we confess to the, our sin to the Lord, He forgives. And sets us free. And removes the guilt. And now that pressure is no longer there. That, that vitality is not drained away because now there's new life. There's forgiveness. There's hope. A renewal. That's ultimately what we want for these people. That we care so much about. They may have to walk through darkness, through, through difficulty, through this pain. Until they get there. Are they willing to pray for that? Are they willing to ask the Lord to do whatever it takes? To get them there. Now sometimes people will be in so much pain they'll do anything to get out of it. They'll say whatever you want them to say. And that's why it's important that we we, we have wisdom as we walk with them through this. We share the truth with them, but we are not too anxious to get them to just pray a prayer and hope they feel better about themselves. We want to let them, we want to let the Holy Spirit do His work in them. And next we're going to talk about what genuine repentance looks like, how we can know what is characterized, what the Scripture tells us is. And we can be discerning to evaluate, do we see genuine repentance? Again, it's not we ever hold back, but... Don't be too quick to try and get them to say a prayer. Prayer doesn't save them. It's the work of Christ in their life. We want to let the work of the Spirit do His work to bring them to that place where they are ready to yield, to acknowledge their sin before the Lord. I said we'll talk about that next time. So the challenge is a difficult one. It's one that requires patience, perseverance, and humility. Are you willing to stand the gap for the sake of someone else, for the sake of their soul? I believe that's what God is calling us to. Well, Father, We want to thank you for these, these passages in Scripture, these reminders 
and help us to realize how we can do our part. What is our part? And certainly, it is to pray. To pray for them. And then when we get up off our knees, we walk into the world. We walk into opportunities You give us. And we let Christ be evident in our life. And as we have opportunity, we speak it. We encourage people. We pray for people when they're going through things that are difficult. We, we walk beside them. We love them where they are. And we speak truth. And we let the work of God happen in their life. So God, we ask You to help us to not lose heart in, in well-doing, but we would, we would get on our knees consistently on behalf of this one person that You've put on our mind and our heart. We might. We might see them saved from themselves and from their sins. We might love them well for Christ's sake. Lord, we thank You your goodness and your mercy in our lives. And now to him who is able to do exceeding abundant beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever and ever. Amen. You may be dismissed.